0: Sorry, no uh, coffee today I'm trying to read the name this, uh, Our learning this morning is for a Rafua shlema for Saralaya Bas Maya Ilanit Who is a young girl in our community, unfortunately undergoing yet another surgery this morning Please God, this one will be successful She should have a complete and speedy refua shlema Amen. Amen. Among all Holy Yisrael Okay, tonight is obviously uh, Purim. Today is Tanish uh, Esther. So we're going to uh, talk a little bit more about Purim. We've been talking about it the last few weeks. In terms of Purim, in many ways, really is the Yantif of Emunah. It's the holiday of bitachon. Whereas all of the other stories of the miracles that we uh, mark and celebrate and memorialize throughout the Jewish calendar are reflective of explicit miracles. God revealed His hand in a most magnificent way. Whether it's the way we left Egypt, ten plagues, the splitting of the sea, the greatest revelation in history, the holiday of Shavuos in which God spoke to us directly from the mountain, we heard his explicit voice, or even the holiday of Sukkot in which the Ananiya covered, we felt divine presence protecting us in our travels throughout the desert. But all the other holidays on the Jewish calendar, including the holiday of Hanukkah in which the laws of nature were transcended and reversed for a cask of oil to last for eight days rather than one, is an uh, explicit revealed uh, miracle for the few to defeat the many. It's something which is, uh, shouldn't happen in the natural order. So if you look at every other day on the Jewish calendar, holiday on the Jewish calendar, it reflects God revealing His hand in the world. And uh, we recognize and appreciate and express our appreciation. We affirm our belief, our confidence, our faith in Him, and our appreciation of Him. These other days are characterized by hallowed the These other days are characterized by a sense of of uh, praise, and of gratitude. But Purim is categorically different, as we've talked about. Purim, the miracle, is totally hidden. You want to read the story of Purim as if you're reading a novel, as if, uh, if you want to read it as an atheist or an agnostic who erases God from the equation, simply sees it as an unfolding of, of uh, chance events, then you're more than invited to read it that way. The Megillah reads, the story of Esther reads perfectly well that way. The challenge with this holiday is up to us. The other holidays God has written, so to say, we read his name, literally and figuratively. And this holiday, we read God's name into the Megillah where it fails to appear. God's name is not in the Megillah. And as I shared in the past, it's called Megillus Esther. The idea is being Megala the Nister. Our obligation is to reveal that which is hidden. God hides Himself in nature, hides Himself in the world. We have the option, the choice, the alternative of saying that these things are just random, they're chance, they're nature. Or we can say that it's all divine, that God is the master puppeteer, that God is behind the scenes pulling all the strings. And that's the challenge of the holiday of Purim. Okay, so what I want to learn together today to get us ready for tonight and tomorrow, our avoda on the schag habitachon, as the Slanom Rebbe puts it. The Slanom Rebbe has not in his usual sefer, he has a separate... Pamphlet called Ma'amare Purim, uh, Essays on the Holiday of Purim. And this is his essay called Purim Chag HaBitachon. Purim, the holiday of faith in God. And he writes the following in the bottom of the first page. The essence of the holiday of Purim, anyone wants the sheets? You good? The essence of the holiday of Purim is the idea that there never was anything like it. Shekamahu lo This enactment, this decree of Haman to destroy and exterminate and wipe out all of the Jews on one day in 127 provinces from the young to the old men and women this decree, this edict, this threat of annihilation that the Jewish people faced was categorically different than any that had come before. And that which it had received the consent, it received the stamp of approval of the king. It wasn't only the decree of Haman. You know, when we read the story of Purim, we read it that Haman is the nefarious, wicked villain. Achashverosh is kind of this, like, goofy, neutral character, right? You read the Megillah on its face, and it just seems like he's this, like, goofy guy, right? He fires Vashti, and he has a. Uh, he runs a. Um, Competition, a beauty competition, in order to find his next queen, and then he's kind of goofy, you know. Haman says, "Destroy the Jews." Says, okay, destroy the Jews. And Esther says, "Hey, that's my people." He says, "Never mind, don't destroy the Jews." And he comes across kind of this goofball, but he's really himself a very wicked person who celebrates the destruction of the temple and who uses the Caleb, who uses the utensils in the Besamikdash Hamikdash to form this uh, this magnificent party. So he's placing his stamp, nechta v'nechta mitabas hamelach, you know, to have the, the the presidential approval to have the uh, the stamp of the king is something which is kamo l-n-yasa. It never happened. Yeshu yeshu kamo and just as the threat was unparalleled, so to the salvation that came was unparalleled. And what happens as a result of the story of Purim is fascinating because it's not just that we survived. Right, the old Jewish joke goes: They tried to kill us, we survived. Let's see, right? That's the traditional Jewish holiday. They tried to kill us, we survived, let's see. But it's not just that they tried to Haman and Achashverosh, and the people of Shushan tried to eliminate us, and we triumphed. It's that there was a complete role reversal. The world was turned upside down. And we went from the position of being threatened for elimination and annihilation, and we were put in a position of, of power. And we were put in the position of success over our enemies. Previously the Jewish people had been saved. We were spared from being wiped out. Just picture after World War II, Jews are liberated from the concentration camps. And immediately, not only have they survived and now skin and bones, they must find a way to rebuild their lives. But imagine that they then take over Germany. The Jews are in control. That they own the military and they own the government and they own. That's what happened in Shushan. The Jews didn't only survive, but they thrived. <speaking in Hebrew> they ruled over their enemies. And this was something also, <speaking in Hebrew> this too was something that had not previously happened. <speaking in Hebrew> and we know the story of Purim has such great significance. Story of Purim is really the story of our recommitment to Torah. It says, "Kimu uh, Yehudim Alehem that after the Jews uh, were successful, the Jews uh, triumphed. So they were given Esther gave this holiday, and they were told to observe to keep this holiday. And the Gemara Chazal, our rabbis, interpret "Kimu kvar." It says, "Kimu they fulfilled and they accepted. So it means that they accepted, they fulfilled what they had previously accepted. What is this a reference to? It goes all the way back to Har Sinai. Our rabbis tell us that at Har Sinai, God held the mountain over our head and He said, if you accept the Torah, good. And if not, I'm going to drop it on your head right here. Shom teik foroschem, this is your burial place. That's it. It's over. Does that mean God literally held the mountain over our head? I don't know. But at least figuratively, we can understand the metaphor. What it means is, When God reveals Himself with such divine revelation, when God reveals Himself so explicitly, He performs such open miracles for you, do you really have free will to reject Him? Free will is the option to choose of alternatives. But when God suspends the rules of nature and creates ten plagues one after another, then God, when you're stuck between the sea and the Egyptians, splits the sea and you're able to walk right between it to your salvation and watch the sea crash down on your enemies your oppressors your persecutors and then you come stand at the mountain and God speaks to you directly explicitly God the creator of the universe the almighty the everything the infinite omnipotent being do you really have free will to say you know what not sure I believe I'm an agnostic you know what I'm an atheist there is no God at that moment of revelation God essentially suspended the free will there was no free will There was no choice. To accept the Torah at Har Sinai, it's not really such a big deal. Didn't really have a choice. Didn't really have a choice. But what happens generations later comes the story of Purim. And now they are living an event where it is the exact inverse. It's the exact opposite. There's no open revealed miracle. There's no rule of nature which is suspended or transcended. God doesn't speak to them directly. They're just watching history unfold. And if they want, they have every right they have every option, I should say, to say there's no God. This is just uh, natural order. It's just history unfolding. It's the way the world works. It just happens to be. It's just coincidence Achashverosh couldn't sleep that night and he was reminded about Mordechai. It's just coincidence Mordechai was in the right place when he heard the, the plans of, of Big Sun of the It's just coincidence that Esther was chosen to be the queen who was in the right place at the right time. It's just coincidence that if you want, you could just keep saying it's coincidence. But the Jews of Shushan didn't say that. What did they say? What a miracle. This is God. God loves us. And God is involved in our lives. And these aren't coincidences. It's not a string of coincidences and chance. This is God in our life. So with that affirmation, with that statement, they had essentially, I don't want to say repaired, but completed the process that began at Har Sinai. At Har Sinai, they accepted God and His Torah pretty much out of coercion because God took away the free will. But on Purim, when they had the right to walk away, when there was the alternative of saying God's not part of the story, and they nevertheless subscribed to God, kimu yehudim, kimu they accepted that which they had they, they affirmed that which they had previously accepted. They they now took that extra step of devotion and dedication and expressed that amazing faith. In Hashem. So the real fulfillment of Kabbalah's Torah, the completion of the process of receiving the Torah, happened, it began at Har Sinai with an act of coercion by God, but it ends with the story of Purim with the voluntary elective statement of faith of the Jewish people. Rabbi Krohn, when he was here, mentioned, quoting Rav David Kohn, the great Gvul Yaivetz, post in Brooklyn, who's been to our community as well, that if you look in the Megill itself, it says the word Kimu Vikiblu, it says Kayam, we read it as kimu, but if you look at the way it appears in the Megillah, it's without the vav. It's in the singular, which is reminiscent of the Pasuk at Har Sinai. It says, Vayichan Sham The Jewish people encamped at the mountain. And Chazal, Rashi quotes, understand, ishechad Belevichad is the motto of our shul, that they were like one person with one heart. Why does it say Vayichan Sham Yisrael? That at the mountain it says that they they stood there they encamped in the singular va'yichan they were many 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 what do you mean in the singular they encamped and the answer it should have said va'yachanu in the plural they encamped why va'yichan Rashi quotes Chazal let's say because they were ki yishechad in that moment the unity was palpable the unity was so strong they were like one organic whole they were one being they were one entity va'yichan in the singular and in the Megillah too this word. Kimu is written Kayam, Kiyam. It's written without the Vav, in the, as if in the singular, that again they stood as one with a great sense of, of unity. So on Purim, with this affirmation of faith when there was the option to walk away, you know, it reminds me, I wasn't alive, but it reminds me from everything I've read, the reaction to the Six-Day War. You know, you could have experienced the Six-Day War and said, yeah, great military, well-trained, well-funded. Yeah, confluence of uh, events that the Jordanian thought that the Syrian thought that whatever, and therefore we were able to bomb the Egyptian army, the Air Force, before even they got off the ground. And look at the string of coincidences and chance events that just allowed the Jewish people, the Jewish state, to not only survive, but to expand and thrive and broaden its territory. Or you could look at the Six-Day War and say, wow, there is no explanation for this. There is no way to understand this in the natural order. There is no reason to believe that surrounded by nations and millions of enemies and greater strength and military, that the Jewish people should have an option of even surviving, let alone to have such a sweeping victory. But that was Purim. And the Jews, after the Six-Day War, had that, had that right. You know, There are people who are alive then who tell me that you know after the Six-Day War, for weeks or months... Jews walked around with their held, head held That's proud. True. Like yeah. the whole world looked at every Jew like they were the strongest person in the world. Mm-hmm. It could be a Jew walking in New York that had nothing to do with the IDF and didn't fight in the Six Day War and had never been to Israel. But a person saw you and you represented Israel that had just done this miracle. And people recoiled and said, wow, look at that. Look at that people. In that miracle was the hand of, of Hashem. So again, this is another example of something that had not happened like it beforehand. That we went from this amazingly lowly state, we were terribly assimilated. We spoke yesterday in the Parsha class about how the Jews at the time of the story of Purim had become extraordinarily assimilated into the Persian Empire how they had become exactly like their neighbors. Even if outwardly they were practicing observant Jews in their attitudes <coughs> and their philosophies and their value system, they had become assimilated to the point that they were attending Ahasuerus' feast. Ahasuerus' feast was celebrating the destruction of the Beit Hamikdash. They ate, they served, the serving pieces at the feast of Ahasuerus was the kalem, the holy utensils that we've been reading about in our and All of the kalem of the Mishkan, of the Beis HaMikdash. And yet the Jews attended this feast, celebrating their own demise. That's how oblivious they were to their own assimilation. And yet they went from that unbelievably lowly state of losing their Jewish identity, and Mordechai, the Ishi Hudi, Mordechai, the proud Jew, the staunch, obstinate, stubborn Jew, who refused to assimilate his values, who refused to assimilate his life, was able to let and Was able to revive within them a swell of Jewish pride and to bring them to a high level. We have a tradition from the Arizal, the great Kabbalist, that Purim has within it this energy, this light, which is unparalleled in any other day. And they say that Purim had a miracle, which was even greater, provided even greater light, illuminated the world even more than at the receiving of the Torah. And the Rezina Rabbi quotes from the Tikune Zohar, We know that we have a tradition, it's not a coincidence just to play on words. We have Purim, and then we have what is the holiest day of the year is called, we call it Yom Kippur. The Torah calls it Yom Kippurim, Yom HaKippurim. Yom HaKippurim sounds like Kippurim. Kippurim means it's similar, it's like Purim. Yom HaKippurim is like, is like Purim. Two sides of the same coin. The Yom So when you say that Yom Kippur is like Purim, which is the greater of the two days? When you compare something to something else, which is the greater of the two days? Purim. Purim. What does it mean to say Purim is a greater day than Yom Kippur? we wear white, we stay in Shul the entire day, we fast and we elevate above our our human animal instinct and we become angelic on Purim. We daven, we do tshuva, uh, Yom Kippur. We daven, we do tshuva, we're forgiven. What does it mean that... uh, what does it mean that, that Purim is even higher or greater than Yom Kippur? Rafutner writes in his Pachet Yitzchak, Rafutner elaborates in many of the essays on this two sides of the same coin of Yom Kippur and of Purim. He says both of them are days of, of uh, tshuva, both of them are days of repentance, of, of returning, of rediscovering who we are and who we're meant to be. You know, but there are two paths to be able to return, The two paths to greatness. The shortcut to greatness. Is to try to practice an ascetic life. You know, it's easy to be holy on Yom Kippur. In fact, it's hard to be bad on Yom Kippur, right? I mean, if you're living an observant life, I don't mean that if you're, you know, if you're violating Yom Kippur. But I'm saying if you're fasting and you're going to shul and you're following along in the machzer and you're pretty much occupied and preoccupied by the davening, there's not really a good chance for Lashon Hara. You don't eat and fail to make a bracha with kavana. There's not a lot of chances to... Most people don't sleep that in on Yom Kippur. They get to the shul fairly on time. Right? If you're a half-decent person, it's hard to be bad on Yom Kippur. So Yom Kippur is a platform that elevates us right, right away. Yom Kippur is Machaper. And we need that refresh once a year. Right, you know, your computer, your phone gets stuck. You guys sometimes just turn it off and restart it and wipe it out and purge everything that was there and give it a fresh, give it a fresh start. Yom Kippur is that purge opportunity for the way that we spend that 25 hours. But to a certain degree, says Ravutner, Yom Kippur is a shortcut. It's a cop out. It's easy to become holy when you're wearing white, standing in shul, fasting from morning to night. How about when you're indulging in food and delicacies and surrounded by friends and family and imbibing a little bit of a lachem? How do you behave then? Do you use all of that to elevate you? Do you transform the mundane, the physical, to propel you to greater holiness? Or does it bring you down to greater, um, to, uh, to being you know, silly and foolish and nashnahara and so on? So which is the holier of the two days? Says Rafutner, Yom Kippur is only like Purim, Yom Kippurim. Yes, on Yom Kippur you can reset and restart and refresh and realize who you are meant to be and achieve a certain level of holiness. But it pales in comparison to the holiness you can achieve on Purim, which is the day that you use, you don't escape the physical and the mundane to become holy, you embrace and dive into the physical and mundane, packing shalach manas and dressing up in costumes and making a beautiful Purim the and sharing the l'chaims one with the other. And if you use all of that, you know, to... Uh, you use all of that to create competitiveness, and who did you eliminate from your Mishloach, and whose theme is not as impressive as yours, and you know, did you drink, and therefore you spoke Lashon Hara, you embarrassed someone, you acted like a fool, did you, you know, only invite people for the perm Do you use it to bring you down, or do you embrace and engage the physical, and use it to lift you up by having guests, and by sharing divrei Torah, and by singing songs, and by feeling an authentic, genuine high of... Of Purim. So if Yom Kippur represents um, B'en Adam Lachaveiro, right, Yom Kippur is only machaper. Yom Kippur, Rafutner says that Yom Kippur only receives atonement when you ask forgiveness from your friend. If you hurt somebody, if somebody hurt you, the day of Yom Kippur itself doesn't help without there being a reconciliation. There has to be a conversation, there has to be a reconciliation. Otherwise, Yom Kippur can create the backdrop, it can create the atmosphere towards reconciliation, but there has to actually be a real reconciliation in order for Yom Kippur to be fully effective. So says Rav Huttner, Yom Kippur, which is a spiritual day, so the reconciliation happens in a spiritual way. Namely, you have to ask machila, one from the other. We verbally, in a spiritual way, we receive forgiveness or reconciliation, one from the other. But Purim, which is a day all about the physical, Purim, which is a day about the physical, how do you receive reconciliation? Mishloch Manos. We deliver Mishloch Manos in order to be able to build bridges and create connection and get back to the unity that we felt at the original Purim. If Purim was the continuation and completion of our Sinai, our Sinai was Vayichan in the singular, not vayachanu, but Vayichan. We were single minded. We had one sense of great unity and mission and purpose. Mm-hmm. So Purim was the completion of that. So on Purim, we seek to get back to that level, that state of unity. And the way we get back to that state of unity is Bain adam Lachavero. The Bain adam Lachavero of Yom Kippur is spiritual because Yom Kippur is spiritual. So we ask each other for forgiveness. And the bein adam Lavero of Purim is physical because Purim is physical. And so we deliver Mishloch Manos one to the other. You know, it's a beautiful thing that everyone gives their friends Mishloch Manos. Mm-hmm. But you know what would be even more beautiful? If people gave their enemies Mishloch Manos. If you try to identify, the same way before Yom Kippur you think about, who have I not spoken to, who hasn't spoken to me, who might I have hurt, who hurt me, what gesture can I make to say, you know what, let's bury the hatchet, life is too short, it's not worth it, let's figure it out. That same attitude that we bring towards Erev Yom Kippur, so it comes out from the Sra'futner, that that's the attitude we should bring towards Erev Purim. You know, who can I surprise by ringing the doorbell and handing them Mishloch Manos? You hand Mishloch Manos to your dearest friends, eh, big deal. It's expected. It. I hope everyone signed up for the sisterhood of Mishloch Manos. It's wonderful. It gets delivered all over the community. It ensures that every person gets at least one Mishloch Manos on the holiday of Purim. It's a beautiful thing. But the ideal of Mishloch Manos is to say, who have I not spoken to in a while? Who have I, did, who have I grown apart from? Who might I have hurt or who might have hurt me that I can ring their doorbell and say, you know what? I want to wish you the happiest and the holiest Purim. I want to build bridges by giving you this wonderful Mishloch Manos. So, Mishloch Manos is the mechanism or the means to achieve on Purim, what asking for forgiveness achieves on Yom Kippurim. And again, in the, in the comparison of these two days that we have from the Zohar, we have the Dil nagom quotes this tradition as well, and our Futner elaborates much more on the two sides of the coin of Yom Purim and Yom Kippurim, and the two days. But Yom Kippurim pales in comparison to the holiness that we're capable of achieving on Purim itself, but and the reason is now we're back in the Slonim Hatam ki yomah kippur shavim. Yom Kippur only works if you make the effort to want to impair, to to repair, to improve. Uva puram kapara afil l'sheinam shavim. But Purim has a sweeping, transformational ability, even on those who have not made an effort. poshe yad nosdan we have a tradition, it's actually quoted in the Ramah, whoever puts out their hand, we give them on Purim. Normally, we might be more more uh, withdrawn in who we give staka to. Purim, whoever sticks out their hand, we give them. Viapi, and according to this, Mizbir, Mashikasim, Hareba, Kadosh, Moshe, Oyakim, the Becifra, Das, Moshe, Be Shem, Hareba, Kadosh, Bebardichev, Shulafamim, Nechtam, Akzardin, Latovo, Beyom, Akipurim, Beyesha, Zos, Lchanaka Shu, Ais, Ratz, and Miyukhan. You know, the Jewish calendar is a great thing. And the Hasidim in particular love to manipulate it. But you know how when you come into Ne'ilah, the rabbi gives that pep talk about, that's it, the doors are closing, daven from the bottom of your heart, the gzardin, what your year will be like, will you tear your Achilles, will you not, what will happen, will it cause pain? Everything about your year ahead, it's all about to be enacted, the doors are closing, hurry, daven. Well... It's not exactly right. Because <laughs> the truth is, you still have till Hoshana Rabbah. Mm-hmm. Right? On Hoshana Rabbah, it's really the end of the high holiday season. Hoshana Rabbah has some, some hints of the high holiday season. Right? The last day of Sukkot. Before Shmini Yetzeris, Hoshana Rabbah, the men were led by someone wearing a kitto, and daviding is done in the Yontif of And when we have a minute to eat kreplach on Hoshana Rabbah, Hoshana Rabbah has uh, an element of still, you know, Ne'ilah's not over yet till Hoshana Rabbah. And even Hoshana Rabbi, didn't sneak in yet. Yeah, there's still a crack in the door, it's not closed, until Zos Hanukkah. The eighth day of Hanukkah is known in Hasidic literature by the beginning of its laning that day, which is Zos Hanukkah. The eighth day of Hanukkah, when the lights burn the brightest, when you have all eight candles burning, you're not done yet. Until the last day of Hanukkah, you still can sneak in the door. And don't worry, because you're still not done yet. Because... This is the tradition from the Briddichev Rebbe, Rebbe Levi Yitzchak of Bar-Ditchav, that if Purim is Yom, if Yom Kippur is a only Yom Kippurim, then Purim really is the completion of Yom Kippur. They're two sides of the same coin. Then your Gzardin, you're not. There's not really any time left for whatever the Gzardin was. <laughs> so practically Rosh Hashanah again. But uh, but really, you have until until Purim. It's a very holy time. <laughs> Okay, I do as, as as a gemar... Uh, ...didn't No, I don't think that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. the not like ...that is not like the yeah, Yechev is right. So according to Reb Levy you go around on Purim and you say, I want to wish you a gemar Chasim People say, what are you talking about? I say, it's Purim. gemar Chasim HaTovah. Apples and easy shalach <laughs> <laughs> So you add, Elo Rosh Hashanah, Sar, Smei Tshuva, Yom Kippur, Hoshana Rabbah, Neila Hoshana Rabbah, Hanukkah, and now Purim really is the end. So you have the opportunity to is say, <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's really, I think that's really it. I think Pesach represents its new season. The year, so that you're like... It gives you hope. Yeah, exactly. It continues to give you hope that you don't have keep, to feel that, what's the point of becoming better? Whatever is going to happen to me was already preordained. Why work harder on my health? or work harder on my Parnassel. or work harder on my Shalom bias? Whatever was meant to be was already enacted. So this gives us hope to say, no, it's not true. The door is still open. I can still squeak through with my with my genuine tefillahs. Okay, so until now, all we've established, all the Islam Rebbe has established until now, is that Purim is categorically different than the other holidays. Right, that the threat was greater than ever, the salvation came more than ever, not only did we survive, but we became um, sovereign over our enemies. We had gone from this horrifically low level of assimilation to this amazingly high level of Kimu Bikiblu, Kimu Mashikiblu Kfar, of completing the process of Harsinai, that this day is even greater than Yom Kippur, Yom HaKippurim, pales in comparison to this day, that on Yom Kippur you have to make an effort to do tshuva, but on Purim you're, you're accepted, your tshuva, whether you make the effort or not. All of these things show that Purim is categorically different. But now we're left with begging the question, why? So the Islam rabbi says the following what is the greatness of this day that there was never a day like it that it's so different than all others you know when Mordechai when Esther warns Mordechai this evil Haman has made this decree he's going to wipe out all of our people what are we going to do Mordechai says you got to go in there and Esther hesitates and Mordechai says to her those fateful words he says Esther Don't worry about it. God's got a plan. God's perfect. God doesn't make mistakes. God's got a plan. And God's going to carry out His plan, and Jewish people are going to survive, because that's His promise to us. Whatever is about to happen, and whatever we go through, Jewish people will survive, because that's His promise to us. And God is going to... God is going to bring us salvation. And don't worry about it. It's going to come from somewhere else, if it doesn't come from here, from you. It's going to come, if it doesn't come from you, it'll come from somewhere else. But you will have missed your purpose in this world. You will have missed your mission. We spoke last Shabbat Shuvah about our personal mission statement and the idea that every one of us has something unique to contribute to this world, something that no one who came before us and no one who will come after us can do. We are uniquely positioned to contribute something to this world. That's one of the lessons of the story of Purim. Mordechai looks Esther in the eye and he says to her, Esther dear, I'm not asking you to do this because it can't happen without you. I'm not begging you because you need to show this act of courage because otherwise we're doomed. We're not doomed at all. God's going to bring salvation. I have faith and trust in Hashem. It's all going to work out and it's all going to be good. I'm worried about you. I'm worried that you're missing your point in life. This is why God This is why you're in this position in this place at this time to say this thing. This is why you're here. Don't blow it. You're going to blow your Whole mission in in life, so Mordechai tells her, "Listen, I'm not worried about us because God will bring salvation from somewhere else." Mm -hmm. This was an answer. Esther said, "Look, I can't go to I can't go to If I'm not summoned, if it's not my day, if I'm not invited, I'll be killed." And that's a very legitimate argument, right? Mordechai says, it's lobby day. I want you to go lobby you got to reverse this decree. And Esther says, it's not like Congress. It's not like the policy conference. We don't have access to our elected officials that we can just show up and lobby. If I go uninvited, they're going to kill me. Esther's perspective was, there is no path forward. There is no path for salvation. Your answer is that I should go speak to Achashverosh. That's a dead end. If I show up at Achashverosh uninvited, they will kill me. And Esther says, if you think that there's going to be some miracle that he's not going to kill me and we're going to achieve salvation, it's not going to happen. Miracles are reserved for people on high levels, and we are on a terribly low level. The Jews of Shushan are assimilated. Jews of Shushan have abandoned God and His values. They participated in the very meal, celebrating their demise. So Esther was not looking for an out. Esther was not making an excuse. Esther was using very religious faith principles to say that in our faith, you only merit a miracle when you're deserving. We are not in a a state of deserving. If I go and I'm not deserving and I rely on a miracle, I'm going to be killed. This is not the path. This is not the solution. A very legitimate argument she's making, compelling argument she's making to Mordechai. And Mordechai answers, Mordechai says, Esther, you think that this is a dead end. You think there's no way forward. You think we're unworthy and therefore this is the end. God is going to bring salvation and success from somewhere else. The Atu Beisavich and you and your family's home, Tovedu, you will be erased. You will be forgotten. You will have missed out on your moment. So it's a very funny conclusion. Ever bother you in the Megillah? Why could Mordecai have just said to her, Salvation will come from elsewhere? Period. End of sentence. Why would Esther not be spared with that salvation? If salvation indeed would come from elsewhere, so Esther and her family would be beneficiaries of that salvation. Why is the end of the sentence that salvation will come from elsewhere and you and your family's home, Tovedu, will be destroyed? See, Mordechai understood at that moment. Mordechai thought Esther was making a fundamental mistake about bitachon, about faith. Mordechai looks at Esther and he says, What's with all the calculations? What's with all the denying God? You think God can't do things. Well, this is the way God works, and we're not worthy, and I merit, and the rule, and I can't, and therefore there's no path, and it won't happen. Mordechai looks at Esther and he says, Where's your bitachon? Bitachon is not when there's clearly a way forward and you know what to do, that you have bitachon. It doesn't require bitachon. When the path is clear, when the solution is visible. It doesn't require a leap of bitachon when it's obvious what to do and what will happen. Bitachon is when it all seems like hope is lost. That's exactly when bitachon kicks in. The Jew always sees salvation as coming. Even when the makom, the place that you're in, you don't see salvation, and you say, I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how this can end. I don't know how I'll survive. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know what will be. Even when you feel in your makom, there's no path, there's no way forward, the Jew always lives knowing, with faith and confidence, the What do I care about the natural order? What do I care about what appears here? What I care about, what I only see before my very eyes. It's not about nature, right? That's taking a little bit from the holiday of Hanukkah. We spoke about on Hanukkah. Hanukkah is the number eight. Eight days. Because Hanukkah is one above nature. The natural order is seven. Days of the week, days of creation is seven. One more than nature is eight. is supernatural, is above nature. Mm-hmm. And the idea is that God put a natural order, and we operate within the natural order, and we make the mistake of thinking that we are controlled by or subservient to our destiny, is relegated to the natural order. And we fail to remember who is behind the natural order. Who pressed play on nature? And who controls nature? And part of the miracle, uh, the Beis Yosef asks the famous question. I'm the only person saying a Hanukkah, the Barat Torah, on Erev Paran. The Beis, Yosef, <laughs> Beis Yosef asks the famous question. Why do we light the menorah of the Hanukkiah for eight days? We should light it for seven days. Because the flask of oil was supposed to have lasted that first day. First day is not a miracle. Only the next seven days are miracles. So we really should have a holiday of seven days, not of eight days. This is the famous question of the Beis Yosef. Others asked it before him. Is a safer near LeMea. A hundred answers to that question. A hundred answers to that question. There's many answers. A thousand answers that have been given to that question. But I'd like to suggest an answer that why do we assume the fact that the oil lit the first night is less miraculous than that it lasted seven more nights? Oh, because in nature, oil is supposed to light? Because when you light oil, it's supposed to light? The only difference between the natural and the supernatural is our expectation of it. Nature, we expect to work, because it's the rules of nature. Supernatural, we have no expectation of. It takes us by surprise. But that which is natural is no less miraculous than that which is supernatural. And that's the message of Hanukkah. shmona. B'nei These are days brought to you by the number eight. Hanukkah is eight days of remembering. Don't be fooled by nature. Even that which is natural is supernatural. Even that which looks mundane is really miraculous. And that's, that theme carries over into the holiday of Purim. Esther stands there and says to her beloved Mordechai, there's no way out. There's no path forward. It's over. It's over. And, she, and Mordechai turns to Esther and says, Rebach v'atzalel y'amod If you think it's over, you're over. You never give up faith. There's always somewhere else to look. There's always the possibility. Ramban writes in his Sefer, on the Apostle King Tehill, Put your trust in Hashem and do good. First it says, put your trust in Hashem, and then do good. Even though you don't have good deeds and you know yourself that you are unworthy, when you feel unworthy, when you feel pathetic, when you feel insignificant, when you feel so far away from Hashem that why in the world should He listen to you, that's when you have to put your trust in Hashem nevertheless. A Jew has to always put their faith and trust in Hashem, even if they're not... Doing good. Says Mordechai to Esther, and making no mistake. Esther is the heroine of the story. In the end of the day, Mordechai gives the pep talk, but Esther is the one who has to find the courage to actually go and approach Achashverosh. She, by far, is the hero of the story. Who has to you know take the take the action. But what Mordecai says, the pep talk he gives her is, he says, hope isn't for a Jew, for a faithful Jew. A Jew of faith, we never give up hope. There's always a makom acher. How many people have in life gone through something where they gave up hope and the makom acher? It came from somewhere else where they never, ever expected it. Someone approached them with the job, or just when they finished the fertility treatments, they got pregnant or they met someone when they had given up all hope of finding their shidduch, or whatever the examples are, where did the revach vahatzalah come? makom acher. It came out of nowhere. They'll describe it. came out of left field. I never even met that person. And through an introduction, I Man, all of a sudden I had a job, the dream job. I met that I was introduced to the right person. They gave me the right advice. The thing happened. Just when you've given up hope, just when you think that there's, you're at a dead end, a Jew believes that never give up faith in the makom acher. But there's the other place, that there's the left field where you never thought it would come from. This attribute, this quality, this level of Bitachom, this level of, of faith and trust in Hashem is called makom acher. God gave us two paths to Him that are included in those words at the beginning of the Sairos of Dibros, Hashem Elokecha, I am the Lord your God. Number one, Anochi Hashem. Hu'amunah v'anahagas Hashem is api ha The Anochi Hashem means I am the Lord. I am the Lord means I created the universe and everything in it. I am behind nature. Elokecha asher hotesicham me'eriz mitzrayim. But I'm not only the Lord, I'm also Elokecha. I'm your God who took you out of Egypt. He hanhagasher l'maylamen ha Menaseder. So, in those opening words of the Aserah Zadibro, says the Selanah God introduces Himself to us. There's two components or aspects to His relationship with us. There's Anochi Hashem, I am the Lord, I am the Almighty, I created everything, make no mistake. I am infinite, omnipotent, I created all. I am all-powerful. But at the same time, Elokecha. Anochi Hashem, Elokecha. I'm also your God. In other words, if you think of God as the omnipotent, infinite, all-powerful, almighty God... You think of him as very far away, very inaccessible, very disconnected from your life. He just created everything and set it in motion. So God continues, but I'm also Elokecha. I'm not just a God who created the whole universe. I'm also intimately involved in your life. Just like in Egypt when the Jews were saturated in the 49th level of Israel, and even in that lowly state, in Egypt, when they were defiled. Nevertheless, God called them my beloved children. And by tapping into this knowledge, by tapping into this knowledge that um, not only did God create the world, but by tapping into the knowledge that God runs our lives. He's involved intimately in our lives. He's aware of everything that happens in our lives. And whatever happens in our life, it's what's meant to be. And therefore, it can't be bad. It can be painful. You know, trust me, not being able to walk for eight weeks, and it's the most humbling, uh, You know, the amount of time it takes to get dressed, to move, to it's unbelievably humbling to slow you down. And is it annoying? It's beyond annoying. Is it painful? It can be very painful. But is it bad? No, it's good. Whatever reason, it's what's meant to be. Whatever happens in life, it's what Hashem sent us. It's therefore what's meant to be. It's what's right, and it's what's good for us. And as Marco Rubio said, God is perfect, He doesn't make mistakes. Whatever, whatever He sent our way is what He meant for us. Mm-hmm. And that's the Elokecha. You see, if all I believed was Anochi Hashem, if all we believed was that I'm the Lord, I said, okay, God created a world of randomness and chance. There's things called Achilles tendons, and they snap, and if you're a certain age... and You know what? There's statistics, and there's data, and I fall right in the age and the lifestyle (laughs) of the statistics and the data. And so it's a fluke of nature that I just became one of the pieces of data that I tore my Achilles and need surgery, and woe is me. But we don't just believe, Anochi Hashem, that there is a natural order and a world of statistics and data. There's Elokecha, that whatever happens to us is not chance, not coincidence. Whatever happened was meant to be is by design, and Hashem is intimately involved in our lives. What we have to remember is, even when we are unworthy, In other words, we think that at the moment of our unworthiness, how can I reach out to Hashem? Because who am I to reach out to Hashem when I feel so unworthy when I've so neglected him, who am I to reach out to Hashem? But it says the Son of Rebbe, it's exactly the opposite. If you are so unworthy, and feel so low, and so insignificant, and yet still at that moment, you rely on the makom acher, you place your faith in Hashem, you all, you incredibly, automatically, become unbelievably worthy in a moment. Someone is somewhat worthy, and they reach out to Hashem, so that's what they're supposed to do. But when you feel unworthy and distant and far away, and you still reach out to Hashem in that moment, you propel yourself, you launch to a place of incredible worthiness right away. Just do two more minutes. Esther, And when Esther hears this from Mordechai, Esther changes her whole perspective. In other words, the Salam of is explaining what's really going on in this dialogue. Esther says, hey Mordechai, uncle or husband, or whoever the relationship is, it's a complicated. set of the But hey, Mordechai, bad news. Been a bad decree. A has stamped, given a stamp to it. We're doomed. There's no way out. Mordechai says, "I don't recognize you, Esther." There's no way out. That's not the way a Jew thinks. <laughs> what happened to Makom Believing that it could come out of nowhere, putting our faith in Bitochon in Hashem. You can't fail in B'tochon now. Don't just look at the rules of nature in the natural order. Don't just look at what's right in front of you and give up hope. What if in the Six-Day War, the Israeli Air Force looked at what was right in front of them and given up hope? What if when we fought the Yavanim, we looked at their numbers and gave up hope? What if throughout our history, we looked at those who were against us and gave up hope in the natural order? We would never be here today. So Esther hears this, and it changes her opinion. And she says, Uvechein avo el hamelech asher lo kidas. Vakasher She says, you're right. Uvechein. And with this, I will come to the king, even without permission. And if I am lost, I am lost. You know, we have a tradition that every time it says the word Hamelech in the Megillah, it's a reference to Hashem. It's not a reference to the king, but you read into the Megillah that every time the word Hamelach is used, the king, it's a reference to Hashem. So Esther hears from Mordecai and she says, uvechein. With your musr shmuz, with your little pep talk about bitachon, avo el I'm ready to come to the king. Now, lo das, even if I'm unworthy, even if I don't feel unworthy, but now that I understand what you've said, mimakom acher, that with the bitachon, we can always come to the king, I'm ready to come to the king. Really, Kron also quoted, I forgot who he quoted it from, the asher. You know, we have this phrase throughout our Yom Kippur davening, uvachain tein pachtacha, uvachain tein kavod throughout our Yom Kippur Davena we have that refrain ubukhain, ubukhain, ubukhain. what's Ubuchayne? so he says it comes from here avo the same way Esther was willing to approach the king even when she felt unworthy so too in Yom Kippur we can approach the king even when we feel at a distance and even when we feel unworthy she had heard this pep talk she was strengthened by Mordechai's encouraging words and when she says, "If I'm lost I'm lost, She wasn't saying this with hopelessness and helplessness. me, I'm willing to risk myself. She went with great joy, willing to sacrifice her life Amen. she said, "If I'm killed as a result, that's a price I'm willing to pay." Because I have such faith in Hashem at this very moment. Mordechai, you've transformed my opinion and my approach so much so that I'm ready to approach the King. And even if it means giving my life, I'm placing that much trust in Hashem that the Yeshua will come from somewhere else. We're going to stop here, but he goes on to say that Amuna happens in a number of different realms. Yesh Emunah Samoach, there's Amuna in the brain, Emunah Salev, Amunah in the heart, and above all of this is Amuna in the Ivarm, Amuna in the limbs. You know, he says, it's one thing to say in your heart all the time, Baruch Hashem, Be'ezrus Hashem, Amir Hashem, I love Hashem, 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 Hashem. And then push comes to shove, and you're anxious, you're nervous, you're stressed, you have no trust in Hashem, you're worried out of your mind. You know, big deal to have Amunah in your head, and big deal even to have Amunah in your heart. The highest place to have Amuna, says the Rebbe, is in your Evarim, in your limbs. In that moment, Esther didn't just have Amunah in her heart or in her head. You know, it would have been easy for Esther to say, gather up the Jews, let's fast, let's daven, let's put our trust in Hashem. That's not amuna in your limbs, to say, let's say Tehillim. There's a great value, Tehillim. I'm not minimizing Tehillim. We have to say Tehillim. It's critically important to say Tehillim. But when we say Tehillim, it's expressing the amuna of our heart, of our head. The amuna of our limbs is when you're willing to put, do, take that leap. Do what you have to do, because you have that faith in Hashem. When Esther says, you know what? whatever will be, will be, I'm ready to approach the king. Because you know what? I believe that this Yeshua, this salvation can come from out of nowhere. I do put that faith in Hashem. And so that's our challenge is to live with that level of emuna and bitachon, not just in our hearts, on our lips, not just in our heads, but with our ivarim, with our limbs, that in the actions of our lives to take those leaps of faith to say Hashem, you know what? I'm not going to be stressed out. I'm not going to be anxious. I'm going to do the best I can. I'm going to take that leap, put one foot in front of my, the other and do what I need to do with the trust that, that as a Jew, all hope is never lost. I never just look at the nature, natural order or what sits in front of me. But I always have faith that you, God, can come even from out of nowhere. I'm wishing everyone a meaningful fast and a very happy Purim.